a lot of people are surprised to find out how young John Tunstall was during the Lincoln County War. At just 24 years of age in 1877, Tunstall was only a few years older than Billy the Kid and younger than many of his employees like Dick Brewer. Another common misconception is that John and Billy were close and even had a mentor-mentee type relationship. Truth is, there's just no evidence to back that up. All total, Bonnie would only work for the Englishman just 10 weeks, and most of that time, Tunstall had pressing business elsewhere. Billy was a hired hand, and that's about it, a position he secured more due to his willingness to use a firearm than anything else. And Billy weren't the only gunman that Tunstall hired. In a letter to his family, John lamented that keeping such men on his payroll wasn't cheap, writing that it, quote, cost a lot of money for men expect to be well paid for going on the warpath, end quote. <laughs> warpath indeed. One has to wonder if Tunstall would have stuck around if he really knew how determined his enemies were. It was a deadly game that the young Englishman was playing, and his opponents were more than willing to do whatever it took to come out on top. By the way, this is part three in the Billy the Kid series. Link in the show notes for the previous two installments. Without further ado, my name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. By February of 1878, you had somewhat of an arms race there in Lincoln County, with both Dolan and Tunstall filling in the ranks with hired gunmen. There were a few minor confrontations on the range where the two sides converged, but no blood was shed as of yet. That would soon change as the Dolan faction began further pressing matters. Not content with just seizing Tunstall's store, Sheriff Brady had sent men to the ranch to confiscate the Englishman's stock as well, with orders to kill if necessary. The posse he dispatched on February 13th, however, was sent back to Lincoln empty-handed after a heated standoff with Tunstall's men, including Billy Bonney. Undaunted, Dolan and Sheriff Brady recruited even more men, and in less than a week, a posse of over 20, including the outlaw Jesse Evans, set out once more for Tunstall's ranch, this time led by J.J. Dolan himself. Meanwhile, Tunstall's men had forded up at the home base and prepared to make a stand of it. Be that as it may, the Englishman soon had a change of heart and sent word that he'd offer up no resistance. Perhaps this was Tungstall's way of just letting things play out in court, or maybe he didn't think that his ranch was the right place for a big showdown. Or maybe he was just buying time, hoping to recruit more gunmen of his own for that proverbial warpath. I'm not sure. What I do know is that early in the morning of February 18th, Tungstall departed the ranch and headed to Lincoln. He and his men driving a small herd of horses that Sheriff Brady had previously deemed not to be a part of that writ of attachment, meaning that they couldn't be seized by Dolan's men, theoretically at least. Speaking of Dolan, he and his posse arrived at Tunstall's ranch that very same day and, as expected, discovered it empty except for the old cook named Goss. And for whatever reason, Dolan then sends out a small posse to overtake the Englishmen and go ahead and confiscate them horses. You know, the ones he wasn't supposed to be able to take in the first place. This sub-posse, led by Buck Morton, consisted of just over a dozen men, including Jesse Evans and two of his bandit buddies, Frank Baker and Tom Hill. Riding with Tunstall, you had Dick Brewer, Fred Waite, John Middleton, Rob Weidenman, and our very own Billy Bonney. I believe Henry Brown was with them, but at some point he turned back. Morton caught up with them that afternoon, found Tunstall alone, and all hell broke loose. Billy and the others, not realizing that trouble was afoot, had just rode off after a flock of wild turkeys, leaving their boss with the horses. Story goes that Bonnie and John Middleton were the first to spot the posse and rushed to warn the others. 
Morton and his bunch opened up fire, sending Billy, Dick Brewer, and Rob Wideman scrambling for cover as Middleton pressed on, trying to get to Tunstall. According to Middleton, he, meaning Tunstall, was on a good horse. He appeared to be very much excited and confused. I kept singing out to him, for God's sake, follow me. Middleton then spurred his horse and headed for cover, joining the kid and the others. Tunstall, however, does not follow. And what happened next just depends on whose version you believe, but at the end of the day, the results were the same. John Tunstall lay dead on the ground, shot to death, just two weeks shy of his 25th birthday. Now, the official narrative, as told by Buck Morton, goes that Tunstall pulled out his gun and snapped off two shots, leaving Buck and the posse no other choice but to return fire. If such is the case, then Tunstall was killed while resisting arrest and attempting to shoot lawfully deputized men. In other words, his killing was justifiable in the eyes of the law. Most people don't buy this version. Uh, a more likely scenario, one backed up by a sworn affidavit by a fellow Dolan posse member, is that Buck Morton, Jesse Evans, Tom Hill, and possibly Frank Baker caught up to the fleeing Tunstall and assured him that they just wanted to talk. As the Englishman approached, Morton drilled him through the chest with his rifle, knocking Tunstall out of the saddle, followed by Tom Hill finishing off the job with a pistol. Some accounts assert that Tom used Tunstall's own revolver for the coup de grace and that he was shot in the back of the head. There were two cartridges missing from John's revolver, but no empty shells were recovered at the scene. Tom Hill also shot and killed Tunstall's horse. I guess the significance here was that everybody knew how much John loved that horse after rescuing it from a slaughterhouse. To further add insult to injury, both man and horse were arranged so that it appeared that they were sleeping with their heads touching each other. Now to this very day, nobody other than Tunstall's killers know the true story. Neither Billy or Dick Brewer or any of the others witnessed their boss's death. They heard the shots, but they couldn't see what was happening. It should also be noted that Morton and the others were on the scene for quite a while, and, as far as I know, none of Tunstall's men fired a shot. I offer up that statement with zero judgment. The posse in return also did not charge the boulders and tree line where the boys were dug in. Once again, no judgment, but I'm not sure why none of Tunstall's men, particularly the ones hired to fight on his behalf, made no attempt at a counterattack. This, to me at least, is as much of a question mark as how Tunstall truly died. Billy and the others would remain hidden until nightfall before leaving. After arranging for a party to retrieve Tunstall's body the next day, they rode straight to Alex McSween's home in Lincoln where, according to at least one eyewitness, the kid was visibly angry and vowing to take out some of Tunstall's killers, quote, before I die. Remember, McSween was a lawyer, and despite his possible shady business practices, Alex refused to carry firearms. Instead of having Tunstall's men ride out and commit acts of vigilanteism, McSween saw to it that everything would be above the board as far as the legalities were concerned. He had a justice of the peace, one that was not aligned with the Dolan Bunch, put out warrants for Tunstall's killers as well as Sheriff Brady for the illegal seizure of Tunstall's store. This was all happening very quickly, day after Tunstall's death. Billy Bonney was deputized, along with Fred Waite, and they, with a very reluctant constable by the name of Martinez, headed out to serve the warrants. Only problem was Sheriff Brady was awaiting guns at the ready, and promptly threw their asses in jail. Hell, Billy was still behind bars on the 21st when Tunstall was finally buried. At this point, McSween flees town with his wife, and Dick Brewer got himself appointed as a special constable by that same justice of the peace that deputized Billy. This was when the infamous regulators were formed. You had that core group and they were all sworn in. 
Billy and Fred Waite, Charlie Bowdry, the co-cousins Frank and George, Doc Skurlock, Henry Newton Brown, John Middleton, Jim French, Frank McNabb, Dermot Mulroney, Lou Diamond Phillips, Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, and Casey Samasco. Runaways, derelict, vagrant types. You couldn't just be any geek off the street if you wanted to join this bunch. You had to be handy with the steel, earn your keep. Uh, yeah, okay. Maybe a few of those names were the actors from Young Guns. And contrary to that movie, as much as I love it, the regulators were not formed to protect Tunstall's property, but rather after his death to avenge their boss's murder. And the term regulators was one used before on the frontier in previous conflicts. As far as their numbers go, it would vary. As few as just a dozen to as many as 60 or so men, many of whom were local Hispanics opposed to the Murphy Dolan machine. That core group of guys, however, like Billy, all took an oath that they referred to as the Ironclad, swearing to never bear witness against each other or tell anyone about their activities. And just in case you're curious as to why I keep bringing up Young Guns, as opposed to the many other movies portraying Billy the Kid, it's because I'm trying to get myself cast as an extra in Young Guns 3, John Fusco. Come on, man. Bro, I'm right here. I'm waiting. I don't have to say a word. You don't even have to pay me. Just slap a cowboy hat on my head and have somebody not named Alec Baldwin shoot me with a fake gun. It'll be fun. No, well, uh, really, the reason I keep bringing up Young Guns is mostly due to nostalgia. There's a lot of green movies out there featuring Billy the Kid. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Gore Vidal's Billy the Kid. I haven't even seen half the movies that portray the kid, and I don't necessarily consider Young Guns 1 and 2 to be the best of all time, but they will forever hold a place in my heart. If you've been listening to the Wild West extravaganza for any length of time, then you know I played Young Guns at recess when I was a kid. I had the Bon Jovi soundtrack, and at one point in time, little 10-year-old Josh had both movies damn near memorized. Judging by some of the feedback I've gotten over the years, I'm not the only one. Alright, let's get back to the story. A week following Tunstall's funeral, the regulators tracked down a couple of his alleged killers. Buck Morton, along with Frank Baker, who, while he may not have pulled the trigger, was certainly an accomplice. And just real quick, if you'll remember, not only is Buck Morton the guy who allegedly killed Tunstall, but he was also the foreman at that cow camp uh, several months prior who Billy swore to get revenge on. And it looks like he's about to make good on his promise. Shortly after these two were taken into custody, here comes former Tunstall Ranch employee William McCloskey, who, as it turns out, nobody much trusted. And what exactly happened next, much like the death of Tunstall, is unknown, but the results were that Buck Morton, Frank Baker, and McCloskey were all three shot deader in hell. The regulators claimed that Morton and Baker somehow killed McCloskey in a botched escape attempt, leaving them with no other recourse but to gun the two prisoners down. McCloskey was one of Buck Morton's buddies, so this more than likely did not happen. More plausible is that the regulators simply executed these men with the idea that if they did indeed bring them to Lincoln and turn them over to Sheriff Brady, he'd just let them go. As far as McCloskey is concerned, I think they did have suspicion that he was secretly giving information to Dolan and his men. Now one could argue that Morton and Baker got their just desserts, but murder is still murder, right? Even if the regulators were wearing badges. Not that they'd be wearing them badges all that much longer anyway. Matter of fact, the day after the triple execution, Territory Governor Axtell himself arrived in Lincoln and promptly revoked the deputization of all regulators. And just like that, they went from being the law to being wanted by the law. The ironclads laid low for a bit, but then came out swinging for the fences by targeting Sheriff Brady. Guess they figured it was time to go big or go home. 
sneaking into Lincoln on the night of March 31st, Billy, Fred Waite, Frank McNabb, Jim French, Henry Brown, and John Middleton all took up positions behind a tall adobe wall near the late Tunstall store. And they waited, patient as Job, until finally Sheriff Brady comes strolling by at around 9 o'clock that morning. He was joined by four of his deputies, George Hindman, John Long, George Pepin, and Billy Matthews. And of course, Billy Matthews rode with Dolan to serve that writ of attachment at Tunstall's ranch, and I'm pretty sure George Hindman was a member of the sub-posse that killed Tunstall. Double-check me on that one, though. The sheriff would pause and speak to a lady, because why not, before catching up with his deputies. Just as they came up to where Billy and the others were perched, we'll call it the kill zone, the regulators opened up a hellfire, riddling the sheriff with at least a dozen rounds. Deputy Hindman was also cut down in this volley as the others ran for cover. He lay lying in the street, screaming, until a man named Ike Stockton ran from a saloon and dragged the wounded man to safety. His heroics were all for naught, however, as one of the regulators, thought to be Fred Waite, squeezed out another round, putting Hindman out of his misery. And just further proof that gunfights are messy, across the street, a guy named Wilson, who had just been working in his garden, minding his own business, suddenly caught a bullet through his ass cheeks. A lot of people getting shot in the ass in Lincoln. Kind of makes me question the accuracy of your average New Mexican. Both Billy and Jim French then hopped the wall and approached the bodies. Some claimed that the kid was attempting to retrieve his rifle from Brady, which was confiscated back when he was previously arrested. Others think maybe he was trying to get the warrants and writ of attachment that the sheriff held on his person. Deputy Matthews took this opportunity to fight back. Firing around into the kid's thigh, the bullet passing clear through and striking Jim French in the leg. They both scramble slash hobble hop away and light out. Following this bloody turn of events, the regulators would take refuge at Blazer's Mill, some 50 miles southwest of Lincoln on the Mescalero Reservation. As the name suggests, Blazer's Mill had at one point been both a sawmill and a grist mill, but by 1878 it was leased to the government and used as a home to the Indian agent Fred Godfroy and his wife. The Godfroys were also known to take in lodgers and hungry travelers as well. Both Billy and Jim French were still nursing their wounds, and the rest, I'm sure, were just trying to figure out their next course of action. You had all the guys that took part in the killing of Brady, in addition to Regulator Leader Dick Brewer, Doc Skurlock, and George and Frank Coe. If I'm not mistaken, there was also another gentleman present by the name of Steve Stevens, a.k.a. Dirty Steve. Yeah, apparently Dirty Steve from Young Guns was a real guy, not to be confused by Dave Rudabaugh, who was also allegedly very dirty. Couple of real dirty birds. I could find very few references to Steve Stevens, other than that he was listed as being with the regulators at Blazer's Mill. According to the internet, grain of salt, Steve would survive the Lincoln County War and die later on in Colorado. Don't know how true that is, and I got no clue as to his participation in other events in the war. If you do, please hit me up and let me know. Kind of curious. Go on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. All total, there were about 14 regulators enjoying Mrs. Godfrey's vittles there at the mill when the toughest nails and heavily armed buckshot Roberts ambled up on his mule. Born Andrew L. Roberts, maybe, and almost certainly never called buckshot during his lifetime, the man still earned the name Honest. Apparently, Roberts had taken a load of shot to his right shoulder at one point, causing the arm to be severely lacking in mobility. Not much is known about the man, though, including whether or not he killed more men than smallpox. Roberts, if that was his real name, would have been in his late 40s and he may have spent time with the Texas Rangers. Or, depending on who you ask, he may have had a shootout with the Rangers. 
He likely served during the Civil War before turning to a career hunting buffalo. And until very recently, Roberts ran a small spread of his own not far from Lincoln and had, in the past, worked for Dolan. While he had no part in Tunstall's death, he was with a large posse that descended upon the Englishman's ranch that fateful day. As such, one of the no longer legal warrants held by the regulators was for Mr. Buckshot. And believe it or not, he did not come looking for a fight. Truth is, he wanted nothing to do with the entire war and even sold his ranch in an attempt to get the hell out of the territory. That was the whole reason he showed up at the mill that day in the first place, to see if the check for said ranch had arrived. Hey, real quick, let's take a break and hear from this episode's sponsors. All right, welcome back. Now, Buckshot had been warned that the regulators were in the area, and thus had taken precautions. When he saw the mail stage headed towards Blazer's Mill, he followed and, not noticing regulator horses, he came on ahead. By the time Roberts realized he had company, it was too late, and I reckon he figured he'd just stick around and see how things shook out. Now, he and Frank Coe knew each other, so Frank stepped outside, thinking maybe he could persuade Roberts into surrender into he and his ironclads. They spoke for the better part of an hour, with Buckshot refusing to hand over his firearms. According to Frank Coe, quote, I think he was the bravest man I ever met, not a bit excited, knowing too that his life was in our hands. End quote. Dick Brewer soon ran slap out of patience and sent more men outside, one of whom was Charlie Bowdry, who wasn't quite as nice as Frank had been. Charlie bluntly ordered Buckshot to throw his hands up and surrender, and Roberts once again refused. Per at least one source, the grizzled old buffalo hunter then called Charlie Bowdry Marianne. And with that, both men opened up fire almost simultaneously. Robert's first round glanced off Charlie's belt buckle, ricocheting and tearing a path across Doc Scurlock's leg, while Bowdry's bullet hit Buckshot center of the belly. Undaunted, the tough old bastard kept to his feet and laid down a withering fire in the regulator's direction, working the lever on his Winchester quick as lightning. He blew off a couple of George Coe's fingers, sent around grazing Billy Bonnie's arm, and yet another bullet of his plugged John Middleton in the chest. Frank Coe would later recall, quote, I never saw a man that could handle a Winchester as fast as he could. Now, by this time, Buckshot had made his way into an adobe building and grabbed a big Springfield rifle off the wall, quickly locating a box of shells and positioned himself to make a stand of it, despite being all gut shot to hell. The regulators, in turn, took up positions about 100 yards away, firing into the adobe but not doing any damage. Dick Brewer snuck around back, where as luck would have it, he had a much better view of Robert's position. Concealed behind a pile of logs, Dick took tearful aim, squeezed the trigger, and missed. There's that famous New Mexico marksmanship. Moments later, Brewer stuck his head up a little too far in hopes of getting off another shot, but Roberts, who obviously spent a lot of time in Texas, was awaiting. A round from that powerful buffalo gun hit Dick square in the eye, blowing out the back of the regulator's head. Now, well after this fight had occurred, Billy Bonnie would claim that he charged the adobe at one point thinking that Roberts was out of bullets, only to have the old man slam his empty rifle into the kid's stomach, knocking his wind out and spiraling him backwards. Much of what we know about the battle seems to come from Frank Coe, and he does not mention this, only saying that one of Buckshot's rounds grazed the kid in the arm and, quote, the kid backed out as it was too hot in there for him. And once Brewer was killed, the battle was over. The regulators had enough and skinned on out, leaving both Dick and Buckshot Roberts behind. Now, Roberts was still alive, but he would pass away the following day, and he and Brewer were buried together. Legend has it that they were placed in the same casket. So at this point, public sentiment is changing. 
a good portion of the regular rank-and-file populace of Lincoln County, had been sympathetic to the cause of the regulators following Tunstall's murder. Everybody knew that the Dolan faction was crookeder than hell. And okay, maybe Buck Morton and them others really had tried to escape, leaving the boys no other option but to open up fire. But the murder of Brady from ambush, and especially the lopsided killing of Roberts, really began to sway the opinion of the people. While Dick Brewer had been a respected man, folks couldn't help but admire Buckshot's pluck against such an overwhelming and what many considered unfair force. And besides, why the hell were they even trying to arrest Roberts? It ain't like they still had legal authority. Couple all this with the false rumors that the regulators were hunting down a judge by the name of Warren Bristle with plans of murdering him as well, and yeah, things ain't looking too good. The regulators, instead of being seen as a force of good, were now viewed as just another band of killers in an already far too chaotic Lincoln County. Then again, things weren't looking all that sunny and bright for the Dolan bunch either. One fact that's often left out of the Lincoln County narrative is that Dolan and the house were going broke at a very rapid pace. But how is that possible, especially considering that they controlled virtually all business in Lincoln County? Or so the story goes, and they were supplying beef to Fort Stanton. Stolen beef, so it was nearly all profit. Dolan was selling bogus land grants and giving out loans with a high vig, and on and on and on. Oh, and Dolan had zero competition before Tunstall arrived, along with the full back end of the powerful Santa Fe ring. So how the hell was he going broke? I know the man was Irish, but one can only drink so much whiskey in any given day. I'm just speculating here, but maybe Dolan was just not very good at running a business. Also, I don't know to what extent Murphy ran the house into the ground before stepping off the pedestal. I reckon it's possible that the house, despite having everything in their favor, was just so horribly ran that by the time Tunstall began offering up competition, they just fell apart. Or could it be that we're not being told the whole truth? Was the Murphy-Dolan faction really the big bad boogeyman that everybody makes them out to be? Did they really control everything in Lincoln County? Honestly, I don't know. I do feel like I'm missing a crucial piece of the story, and I think that's partly due to most accounts of the conflict being biased. And don't get me wrong here, I don't think Dolan was the good guy or that he was even falsely maligned. But then again, I don't think McSween was no angel either. Once again, I just feel like there's some either I'm not picking up or that we don't know. Nevertheless, in March of 1878, before the gunfight at Blazer's Mill, Dolan and his partner Riley filed for bankruptcy. What's more, Tom Catron, a.k.a. Mr. Santa Fe Ring, seized all of Dolan's assets and closed down his store in Lincoln, much in the same way that Sheriff Brady had done to Tunstall's store. Speaking of Brady, Billy, John Middleton, and Henry Brown were all indicted for the sheriff's murder, while Charlie Bowdry and a few others caught charges for the death of Buckshot Roberts. Dolan and his men weren't immune to the long arm of the law either. Jesse Evans and a few others were wanted for Tunstall's murder, with J.J. Dolan and Deputy Billy Matthews being named as accessories. And of course, a new sheriff was appointed to take Brady's place. Big old boy named John Copeland, who history has not remembered as the sharpest knife in the drawer. Now this was sort of a W for the regulators. Sheriff Copeland was easily swayed and soon fell under the influence of Alex McSween who had now moved back to his home in Lincoln. While the new sheriff did indeed hold warrants on many of the regulators, he would not serve them. As such, Billy and the other ironclads took up a headquarters right there in McSween's house. With Dick Brewer gone on to his eternal reward, 
Frank McNabb, who, as far as I can tell, was not under indictment, took over as the new regulator leader and acquired a commission as a deputy from the Justice of the Peace over in San Patricio. With this new development and the ineffectual Sheriff Copeland, the regulators were just openly roaming the town of Lincoln, having a good old time. Hell, often as not, the sheriff would join in on their festivities. Not so much Billy, though. Remember, he avoided alcohol, and he did love to sing, so he spent a good deal of the evenings there in Lincoln at McSween's house, participating in sing-alongs as the ladies took turns at the piano. All the while, Dolan was across the street choking down his rage, plotting a comeback. He was all snowed up, walking with crutches after breaking his leg in an accident with a horse. And his chief enforcer, Jesse Evans, was likewise out of commission. He had decided to rob the wrong sheep herder over Tularosa Way and got himself shot in the hand. When he rode into Fort Stan to receive medical treatment, they locked the damn criminal behind bars where he belonged. Towards the end of April 1878, former Lincoln County deputies George Pepin and Billy Matthews rode on over to Seven Rivers and raised a posse of around 20 or so men. On their way back to Lincoln, Pepin and his recruits stopped at the Fritz Ranch just to rest their horses when they gathered a little intel that they just couldn't pass up. Seems that three of their enemies, Frank McNabb, Ab Saunders, and Frank Coe, were due to stop by on their way to Coe's ranch. Oh boy, that's just what these guys wanted to hear. Time to even up the score some. The Seven Rivers Bunch took up concealed positions and waited with bated breath. Guns at the ready. Sure enough, here they come. Frank Coe riding about 100 yards ahead of McNabb and Saunders, which more than likely saved his life. He passed by first as the assassins waited. Finally, when McNabb and Saunders came within range, the posse opened up. At the sound of gunfire, McNabb's horse threw him and he attempted to flee on foot, but was pursued and shot dead. Saunders also lost his seat and went flying, taking a bullet in the hip while doing so. Frank Coe remained unharmed, although I can't say the same about his pony. The horse took a bullet in the head and Frank, just like McNabb and Saunders, went spilling to the ground. Now both he and Saunders were taken prisoner, although separately. At the time, Frank thought Ab was dead. Pepin and his posse then headed for Lincoln, where they posted up that night in a little stand of trees at the edge of town. A few of them, with Frank Coe still as their captive, entered Lincoln in the cover of dark and set up in Dolan's store, the one that had just been closed down. I guess the idea here was to try and force Sheriff Copeland's hand and finally doling out them warrants that he held on the regulators. Now that he had a large force of men at his disposal, he would have no excuse. This was not to be, though. As when the good sheriff received word the next morning, he was already at McSween's place. I don't know if he had just slept over after a long night of sing-alongs or what, but he had no intention whatsoever of serving any warrants. The regulators, upon hearing this new turn of events, immediately fanned out. Some of them hit in the streets while others took up position on the rooftops, one of whom was Frank Coe's brother, George. Matter of fact, old George spied a Dolan man several hundred yards away and drilled him through the legs with that sharps rifle of his. And with that, those posse members who were still in Dolan's store all spill out and gunfire erupts from both sides. In all the confusion, Frank Coe escapes and rejoins the kid and the others. Bonnie, by the way, did not stand out one way or another in this fight, so I can't tell you exactly what he was doing, but one could assume he was likely up on a roof with Coe firing at the Dolan and Pepin men. At this point, the stalwart Sheriff Copeland came down with a case of nervous and sent word for the army to come help. A lieutenant from Fort Stanton led a detachment of 20 Buffalo soldiers with orders to arrest anyone on either side who was causing trouble. All total, about 30 men were taken into custody, including Alexander McSween. 
These prisoners were taken back to the fort, but after a few days, they were released to Sheriff Copeland, who promptly just let everybody go with promises not to cause no more trouble. And believe it or not, they all held true to their word. From that day forward, Lincoln County, New Mexico remained a neutral area of peace. While there would continue to be difficulties outside county limits, criminals and law-abiding taxpayers alike would willingly disarm themselves when they crossed over into Lincoln. Dolan and McSween both called a truce, sealed over a song at Mrs. McSween's piano, and they ended up becoming good friends, even started a church together, the only Presbyterian Catholic church in the continental United States. To this day, Lincoln County, New Mexico is regularly ranked as one of the safest places to live in all of the Southwest, and all because way back in 1878, Sheriff Copeland made all them old boys pinky promise to be good. And absolutely none of what I just said was true. The prisoners were taken back to the fort, and they were released to Sheriff Copeland, and he did let everybody go. But there sure as hell weren't going to be no truces, and the violence was far from over. Billy and his ironclad had just lost two leaders in under a month. Dick Brewer and Frank McNabb, and they weren't about to take that line down. Next up to the plate as regulator top dog was Josiah Doc Skurlock, who was promptly given a deputy's commission by Sheriff Copeland. Now, Doc Skurlock was hell on wheels as a younger man. Born in Alabama and said to have studied medicine for a short time in New Orleans, Doc headed down to Old Mexico where he killed a man during a card game. Skurlock then went to work punching cattle for John Chisholm, where he had at least two very close calls with Native American war parties. It was after one such fight that Doc decided to call it quits on Chisholm and depart with a few of the old man's horses in lieu of his final wages. He met up with Charlie Baldry over in Arizona, they became good friends, and opened up a cheese factory. And while I can't prove this, I would assume that they would both break out into fits of giggles whenever they decided who was going to cut the cheese. Skurlock and Bowdry left Arizona for Lincoln, where they started a spread of their own, and they, along with the co-cousins, busted into the Lincoln County Jail in the summer of 1876 and lynched a cattle thief. Hell, they hung a lot of thieves, and alleged thieves, and at one point, Doc and a few others were arrested by Sheriff Brady, and, to hear some tell it, tortured. As with everything else in Lincoln County, the lines were often blurry. The reason Brady arrested Doc was due to him harboring a fugitive who just so happened to be a member of Jesse Evans' gang. But then again, just a few months later, Doc was riding with a posse in pursuit of Evans' gang horse thieves. I suppose you could say that as was the case with Billy Bonney, these men's paths were all intertwined and you could be friends with certain Jesse Evans' allies and enemies with others. I guess my question is why was Sheriff Brady so concerned with Doc harboring a fugitive if that fugitive worked for Evans, who worked for Dolan, who controlled Brady. Who knows, man? It was among the Irish. Real patty shit. In 1878, Doc would have been around 29 years old, a seasoned, proven killer, and a natural to take over as the regulator leader. On May 15th, with Doc in the lead, the regulator struck one of Dolan's cow camps, scattering the cattle all to hell and back while making off with around 25 head of horses and the camp cook. I know what you're thinking. What's the poor cook have to do with anything? Well, this feller in particular, Manuel Indian Segovia, was alleged to have taken part in the ambush killing of Frank McNabb. Not only that, but apparently Segovia was the one who dropped the hammer on the fleeing McNabb. And just like Buck Morton and Frank Baker, back two months previous, old Segovia was shot dead while air quotes attempting to escape. In other words, he was 100% executed. The regulators did sort of step into it with this raid. Uh, like I said earlier, Thomas Catron had recently foreclosed on Dolan's business interests, his store and livestock included. 
So Doc and Billy and them others weren't just robbing from the Lincoln County Dolan faction, as they assumed, but Catron, the most powerful man in New Mexico at that time. In response, Catron, with Governor Axtell as his lapdog, had poor Sheriff Copeland replaced with the ironclad enemy George Pepin, who wasted no time in forming another posse, some of whom were just hired thugs to do what Copeland wouldn't do and serve that huge stack of warrants on all the regulators. Pepin even had the U.S. Army at his beck and call with soldiers from Fort Stanton assisting his men in hunting down fugitives. This was short-lived, however, thanks to a little something called the Posse Commodus Act, not to be confused with the much more popular Pussy Cominatus Act. No longer could Colonel Dudley intervene in civilian disturbances unless there was a damn good reason. By the way, Dudley had only been in charge there at Fort Stanton for like a month. I'm sure he was just thrilled to have been tossed in the middle of all this. At the same time, the violence in Lincoln had filtered all the way to Washington, D.C., thanks to a letter-writing campaign by Alex McSween and the family of John Tunstall. Their efforts, plus those of the British Foreign Office, provoked the Justice Department to send in a special agent, mostly to look into Tunstall's murder, but also to investigate official misconduct in Lincoln and the surrounding counties, meaning corruption. Even Billy the Kid had his deposition taken, and yet the violence continued. The regulators, operating under Doc Skurlock's deputy commission, were attempted to serve warrants on the Dolan faction, while Sheriff Pepin was doing the same to the regulators. Everybody was trying to arrest everybody, and by this point, old John Kinney had even joined forces with Dolan as well. That little standoff in Lincoln back on May 1st was just an appetizer. The regulators had him a headquarters of sorts over in San Patricio, about 10 or so miles southeast of Lincoln, but at night they would often take refuge in the hills. In late June of 78, Sheriff Pepin's right-hand man, Deputy Jack Long, and five posse men, along with John Kinney and about a dozen of his bandits, descended on San Patricio and interrogated George Washington, the official regulator cook. Luckily, Mr. Washington would fare better than Indian Segovia, and he did live to see another day. From there, Long raided the ranch John Newcomb, but once again came up empty-handed. Upon returning to San Patricio, he and his men spied some riders in the distance and rode toward them, thinking it was John Kinney and his group. Well, they were in for a surprise. Turns out them riders were Billy Bonnie, Charlie Bowdry, Waite, and about seven others. They opened up fire and dropped a couple of Long's horses, but, keeping with the tradition of nobody in New Mexico being able to hit the damn broadside of a barn, no riders were hit. John Kinney hears these rifle shots and comes riding causing Billy and the others to retreat up a mountainside and set up a quick perimeter. For the next few hours, Kenny and some others would attempt to flush them out, but the regulators held them to about 500 yards. That night, Billy and company slipped away, and that was that. Not long after, on the 3rd of July, a Dolan faction Hispanic posse under Deputy Jose Chavez Ibaca came calling at San Patricio, but the regulators were ready. Perched up on top of the adobe buildings, they opened up fire on the posse as soon as they rode into town. According to George Coe, there were two or three men on top of every building, but in the great dawn of morning, it still wasn't light enough to see too well. Nevertheless, they, according to Coe, killed a couple of horses and wounded at least one man. Abandoning San Patricio, the regulators headed further southeast to Hondo, now with John Kinney and Jack Long on their trail once again. Hell, even Dolan was riding with him now. Guess his leg was feeling a little better. Irritated, Doc Skurlock reined in and had the men set up a hasty ambush. As expected, the pursuers kept on a-coming and two more horses fell under a hell of bullets. I'm starting to think they should have called this the Kill Innocent Horses War instead of the Lincoln County War. All jokes about bad aim aside, I do get it. 
I think these skirmishes are pretty indicative of real life when nobody's trying to be John Wayne. Unlike in the movies, bullets don't always hit their intended target, and besides, nobody's trying to stand up and get shot, right? The only surprising thing here is that there weren't more innocent people and horses killed during this conflict. It certainly wasn't for lack of trying. From there, the regulators pushed on and camped out on the Chisholm Ranch. Old man Chisholm wasn't home, but his little niece Sally was. And at 16 years of age, Sally Chisholm was one of the many young gals of the area who Billy Bonney often tried to spark. On the morning of July 5th, Billy, along with a few others, rode into the town of Roswell to buy some candy for the young lady. Because nothing says seduction like a pack of Twizzlers and a half-melted Kit Kat. On the way back to the ranch, they were waylaid by some of the Seven Rivers men, resulting in a run-and-gun battle. The regulators held the ranch all day as sporadic gunfire was exchanged, but by the time reinforcements from Lincoln arrived, Billy and the others had slipped away once again. Here's another little fun fact for you. That store clerk who sold Billy Bonnie the candy for Sally Chisholm was none other than Marshall Ashman Upson, Ash for short, the man who would end up ghostwriting Pat Garrett's book about Billy just a few short years later. So as you can see, things are really starting to ramp up. Aside from a few dead horses, however, casualties are light. That would change come mid-July when the two factions would face off once again, and once again the fight would take place within the town of Lincoln. In the preceding months, Billy Bonney, young though he was, had proven himself a capable hand in a fight. Bold, confident, and willing to kill even when the target was a sheriff. And he would soon get his chance to further prove his mettle. Hey, real quick, let's take a break and hear from this episode's sponsors. All right, welcome back. On the night of July 14th, Alex McSween returned to his home in Lincoln, yet again. He was tired of hiding out in the hills with the boys and wished to see things through, even if it meant his death. Be that as it may, he brought some insurance with him in the form of the kid and 60 or so regulators. They spread out and set up positions all over town. Billy, along with several other men, posted themselves over at Jose Montano's store slash boarding house, while Scurlock, Frank Coe, Charlie Bowdry, John Middleton, and about 15 others manned the business place of Isaac Ellis. Still more took up positions at the home of Juan Patron, while the rest would man McSween's house. And just like during that first battle of Lincoln, as well as San Patricio, gunmen also took to rooftops. As fate would have it, most of Sheriff Pepin's men were out of town at the time, searching for the regulators. Only Sheriff Pepin, Dolan, and a handful of guys remained, and they wisely took cover in the Wortley Hotel, just across the street from the old Dolan store, while Long and five of his deputies manned the Torreon. Torreon. Sorry, I can't roll my R's. Now, you can still visit the Torreon to this day, if you go to Lincoln. I believe it's been at least partially reconstructed, but it is pretty cool looking. It's this circular adobe building that was once literally used as a fortress by early Lincoln citizens when it was built back in 1850. And if I'm not mistaken, several of these buildings still stand, including Jose Montano's place where Billy the Kid was staked out at, and John Tunstall's store. Man, I gotta make a trip to Lincoln one of these days. Just do Mexico in general. I'd love to visit some of the places already mentioned in this series. Fort Sumner, Lincoln, Blazer's Mill, San Patricio. I'd also really like to make my way up to Taos, too. Really beautiful state, and besides, not like there's any danger of me getting shot or anything, right? Much to Dolan's relief, his reinforcements soon arrived. Late that afternoon, nearly 40 of Pepin's men rode into town, not quite evening up the odds, but certainly giving the sheriff and Dolan a fighting chance. Now that newly arrived posse, 
I don't even think they dismounted from their horses before they all spun around and began firing on McSween's house, causing the kid and several other regulators to leave the Montano store and head to McSween's aid. Deputy Long, from his position on the Torreon, yelled out for Billy to halt and was answered with a volley of shots. As far as the men that were already posted at McSween's house, they too opened up fire, peppering the Wortley and sending some of the freshly arrived fighters diving for cover. Billy Bonney was now at McSween's adobe house, and he weren't alone. You had regulator newcomer Tom O'Salliard, along with Jim French, Jose Chavez y Chavez, George Coe, Tom Collins, Genio Salazar, and several others. You also had non-combatants like the family of David Shield, McSween's law partner. He wasn't home at the time, but his wife Elizabeth, Susan McSween's sister, was, along with their five children. There was also a lady named Susan Gates, assistant to the Reverend Ely, and you had poor Harvey Morris, a law student from New York City who had the misfortune of working with McSween. Not only had Harvey got himself caught up in a war, but the poor bastard was also dying from tuberculosis. Bad luck all around. Quick note on Jose Chavez y Chavez. I haven't mentioned him much because there's not a whole lot of information on the man. He was a native of New Mexico, his mother possibly Navajo or Apache, and by the time of the Lincoln County War, Chavez, obviously a McSween partisan, was living over at San Patricio. It's after the events described in this series when Jose's life really got interesting, in my opinion at least. Dude lived all the way till 1923. A career outlaw who once allegedly backed down Bob Ford, Chavez would be sentenced to life in prison in the 1890s, but later released after saving a guard during a riot. I do hope to cover him more here on the Wild West Extravaganza, and I hope I can find out some more information. As far as Dolan's men were concerned, you had Sheriff Pepin and his posse, many of whom were members of the posse that raided Tunstall's ranch, and they were supplemented by the Seven Rivers Warriors, the same group that went up against Chisholm in the Pecos War. You also had John Kinney and about a dozen of his desperados, along with the ever-present Jesse Evans, who was now out on bail. The two factions would fall into a stalemate pretty quickly. Nobody wanted to be the first to charge and get killed, so both sides satisfied themselves with trading pot shots, most of which were ineffective, although a round did make its way into the McSween home, killing regulator Tom Collins. I don't know if you've ever seen Open Range, but there's a scene towards the end, right before that last showdown, where you can see the civilians all flee in town. That same thing was happening here in Lincoln. The good citizens had either beat feet or hunkered down, leaving nobody but combatants roaming the streets and rooftops. Problem was that the regulators were quickly running out of water, whereas the Dolan faction had easy access. And really, that's just one of the difficulties that the regulators were running up against. On July 15th, Sheriff Pepin sent a message to Colonel Dudley up at the fort asking if he could pretty please borrow a mountain howitzer. Dudley, although sympathetic, knew he could not legally do so. Instead, he sent one of his troopers to Lincoln the next day with a message explaining his position to the good sheriff. Upon seeing a mounted soldier riding down the street, somebody from inside McSween's house opened up fire. The trooper slid off the saddle but was uninjured. The next day, the colonel sent in a few officers to investigate the shooting, and they too were fired upon. I guess Doc Skurlock's daddy-in-law, Fernando, had been sniping at some of the housemen outside of town from his perch atop Montano's store when one of his rounds hit its mark, shattering the spine of a Dolan sharpshooter. When those officers from Fort Stanton went to the injured man's aid, they too were fired upon. Not a smart move. U.S. soldiers had now been shot at twice in as many days. 
Now Colonel Dudley had all the excuse he needed to bring his troops into town for the, quote, preservation of the lives of the women and children. They arrived on the morning of July 19th, a company of both Tav, Ulri, and infantry, led by Colonel Dudley himself. And in addition to the mountain howitzer, they also brought along a Gatlin gun. Now let me just say that oftentimes Dudley is portrayed as one of the bad guys. It's kind of hinted at that he was on Dolan's payroll or just another hired gun like Jesse Evans, or simply that Dudley had no business interfering in the Lincoln County War and that him showing up with his troops was illegal. I'm not too sure he had much of a choice. On one hand, yeah, the military is not a police force, and they don't have any business interfering in civilian matters. That's what law enforcement's for. But had Dudley just sat back at Fort Stanton, just 10 miles away, while two small armies of gunmen destroyed the town of Lincoln, I think he likewise would have been condemned. Rockin' a hard place. Hey, one more quick note on Colonel Dudley. I'm adding this in after the fact, like the day before this episode's going live, so sorry if it sounds a little different. And this is just kind of an afterthought. Uh, just want to make it clear, I'm not necessarily defending anything the man did, although I could see why you may think so. While I do believe that Dudley was sort of forced into the Battle of Lincoln, his biggest crime, in my opinion, was not interfering enough. He sat around, keeping his soldiers at bay, as the McSween home was fired upon over and over and over again, with women and children inside. If the colonel was truly there to preserve the peace and keep women and children safe, he should have done so. Instead, he just sat around on his thumbs. Dudley would ultimately be removed from his command of Fort Stanton, like four months after the battle, but he was never found guilty of anything, and he would spend the rest of his life in the military. On a slightly related note, I was recently accused of quote-unquote having something against Billy the Kid, but I'm not sure that's fair. I will concede I might have a little of a contrarian streak to me. I won't deny that, but I say this again at some point in this series. Of all the people I cover on this podcast, the Kid is easily one of the most likable. I don't look up to him. I don't consider him a hero. I don't consider the vast majority of the people I cover on this podcast heroes. But I don't have anything against the man. Hell, I'm just doing a history podcast and trying to tell the history as it actually occurred. This means oftentimes that what I'm discussing goes into direct conflict with what we've been told in movies and legends and stuff like that. Like I've said before, when it comes to history, something either happened or it didn't happen. I can't will something to be true if it didn't happen. All that said, I am very open and willing to discuss any of these topics with anybody listening. Just hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com. But please, if there's something that you think I got wrong, give me some specifics rather than just a general, hey, you're not being nice to Billy. All right, back to the show. Dudley is also accused of being impartial. Although he did keep his soldiers in check, he did announce that he was simply there to see to it that no women or children were harmed, and he even threatened to blow Pepin, quote, above the clouds if any of the sheriff's men fired upon the soldiers. However, this impartiality is often questioned due to the howitzer being almost immediately aimed right at that Montano store where more than a few regulators were holed up. Not one to be blown all to hell, they spilt out the store and joined the others who were stationed at the Ellis building. And the cannon along with that Gatlin gun followed. Not firing, mind you, but I gotta assume having a damn cannon pointed directly at you is enough to make your butthole pucker. The fighters, freshly assembled over at the Ellis store, now numbering around three quarters of the regulator fighting strength, once again fled, this time completely out of town. To their credit, they did make half-hearted attempts to re-enter, but they were held back by Dolan's men and the threat of those big guns. 
This left just 13 fighters holed up at McSween's house, Billy Bonnie among them. And by now it's July 19th, so four days after Billy and the regulators had first arrived. Later that morning, a Deputy Turner, along with several others, worked their way close to the McSween house and yelled out for everyone to surrender, and that he had a warrant for McSween's arrest. Alex replied that no, he would not surrender, and furthermore, he held warrants for the arrest of many of those posse members who were now trying to arrest him. So nanny nanny boo boo, stick your head in doo doo. And these warrants, I assume, if they existed, were either being held by Scurlock or one of the Hispanic deputies, I don't know. When Turner demanded to see the warrants, Regulator Jim French yelled out, quote, Our warrants are in our guns, you cocksucking sons of bitches. End of quote, and yeah, that, that's a direct quote. Don't get mad at me because you decided to let your precious little grandbaby listen to a podcast about a killer and then somehow find yourself having to explain what a cocksucking son of a bitch is. If you don't want to hear naughty naughty bad words, go watch Coco Melon. A few hours later, Susan McSween would emerge to both confront Sheriff Pepin and speak with Colonel Dudley, and it just disintegrated into a shouting match. Typical woman, right? Getting emotional. No, uh, <laughs> completely understandable that she was upset. Susan wanted to ensure her husband's safety, but was also angry at the colonel's perceived partiality to Lincoln's official lawmen. The Fort Stanton officer would not interfere with the legal discharge of the sheriff's duty, and Susan feared that Pepin would simply execute Alex if he got a chance. And just to further highlight why it was very justified that Susan McSween was upset, the posse then attempted to set the house on fire with her and all those children inside. Not an easy task, considering it was made of adobe. The attackers got close enough to splash oil on the outside and hit it with a match, but it was quickly extinguished. Finally, on the third try, around 2 p.m., the posse was able to set the adobe smoldering, a slow, smoky fire that began spreading from room to room. Worth mentioning that the McSween home was not tiny. From sketches I've seen, it appeared to be on the big side, sort of U-shaped, with Susan's sister Elizabeth and her family living on one side. Now, Elizabeth and her brood of children, along with Mrs. Gates, were finally allowed to leave. Susan would stay behind for the time being, but she also abandoned the smoldering domicile around 5 p.m. at Billy's urgence. According to Susan, quote, The boys decided I should leave. The kid was lively and McSween was sad. McSween sat with his head down, and the kid shook him and told him to get up, that they were going to make a break, end quote. Kind of weird that she refers to her husband as McSween, but all right. This tantalizing detail shows how Billy had begun taking on an air of leadership there in the smoky house. Which begs the question, where was Doc Scurlock, the official regulator leader? Apparently, he was among those stationed at the Ellis store. When that cannon swiveled their way, he left with the others to the outskirts of town. By now, the flames were spreading rapidly thanks to a keg of gunpowder that ignited. And to all of this chaos, men continued to fire shots back and forth at an ever-increasing rate. Weren't too long before all of the men left at McSween's place were crowded into the same room, nearly surrounded by flames and working themselves up to make a daring escape. Billy's plan was simple. The idea was to break out the back door and head for the river, just a few hundred yards away. Some of them were sure to get hit, but if they could just get out of the damn burning adobe and across that river, they'd at least have a chance. They even removed their boots, thinking maybe they could sneak away without being seen or heard, but this would not be the case. At 9 p.m., it was go time. Billy, Tom O'Fallier, Jim French, Chavez, and poor Harvey Morris were the first to go. If need be, they'd serve as a distraction for the others. 
and although it was nighttime, the burning adobe illuminated the dark sky and they were almost immediately drawing heavy fire and giving back what they could. Morris, the law clerk who had no business playing in such games in the first place, was cut down almost instantly. Billy Chavez, Tom, and French made it beyond the gate and into the darkness firing as they ran, miraculously not even getting so much as a scratch. During the melee, the kid was even able to get off a shot that creased John Kinney's upper lip, singeing off parts of the outlaw's mustache hairs. Meanwhile, McSween and the others tried to follow, but they were soon driven back. Alex into the house and some of the others diving into a chicken coop for cover. McSween yelled out that he'd surrender. The firing stopped. He stepped out, but quickly stepped back inside. Guess he saw something he didn't like and changed his tune. Now allegedly saying, I shall never surrender and thus commenced what some referred to as the big killing, as both sides opened up fire. Bob Beckwith, a deputy down from Seven Rivers, caught a bullet in his left eye while regulators Vicente Romero and Francisco Zamora, both standing on either side of McSween, were cut down. Another regulator, Genio Salazar, just 15 years old at the time, took two bullets, one in the back and one in the shoulder, as he wisely feigned death and crumpled to the ground. And of course, there was McSween, riddled by at least five rounds. McSween's store was then looted as the posse celebrated. Whiskey was passed around and fiddles were played over Alex McSween's dead body as it lay in the blood-soaked dirt, at least until Colonel Dudley had the decency to throw a blanket over him. Dolan and his men may have been victorious, but there were no winners, and the killing was far from over. And that about does it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you get a chance, head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button or email me direct at josh at wildwestextra.com and let me know what's on your mind. Comments, suggestions, complaints, recipes, recommendations, whatever. Do me a favor, share this podcast with somebody who you think would enjoy it. Word of mouth goes a long way. All right, we'll be back next week as we continue to delve into the life and times of Billy the Kid. Till then, should it be your great misfortune to find yourself engulfed in a range war, here's hoping that it's in New Mexico where nobody knows how to shoot. Adios. Make your butthole pucker. <laughs> <laughs>